The Mystery Girl by Carolyn Wells. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Roger Moline. The Mystery Girl by Carolyn Wells. Chapter One A President Elect. Quite aside from its natural characteristics, there is an atmosphere about a college town, especially a New England college town, that is unmistakable. It is not so much actively intellectual as passively aware of and satisfied with its own intellectuality. The beautiful little town of Corinth was no exception, from its tree-shaded village green to the white-columned homes on its outskirts it fairly radiated a satisfied sense of its own superiority. Not that the people were smug or self-conceited. They merely accepted the fact that the University of Corinth was among the best in the country, and that all the true Corinthians were both proud and worthy of it. The village itself was a gem of well-kept streets, roads, and houses, and all New England could scarce show a better-groomed settlement. In a way, the students, of course, owned the place, yet there were many families whose claim to prominence lay in another direction. However, Corinth was, by all counts, a college town, and gloried in it. The university had just passed through the throes and thrills of one of its own presidential elections. The contest of the candidates had been long, and at last the strife had become bitter. Two factions strove for supremacy, one, the conservative side, adhering to old traditions, the other, the modern spirit, preferring new conditions and progressive enterprise. Hard-waged and hard-won, the battle had resulted at last in the election of John Waring, the candidate of the followers of the old school. Waring was not an old fogey, nor yet a hidebound or narrow-minded back number. But he did put mental attainment ahead of physical prowess, and he did hold by certain old-fashioned principles and methods, which he and his constituents felt to be the backbone of the old and honored institution. Wherefore, though his election was an accomplished fact, John Waring had made enemies that seemed likely never to be placated. But Waring's innate serenity and acquired poise were not disturbed by adverse criticism. He was a man with an eye singled to his duty as he saw it, and he accepted the position of responsibility and trust simply and sincerely with a determination to make his name honored among the list of presidents. Inauguration, however, would not take place until June, and the months from February on would give him time to accustom himself to his new duties and to learn much from the retiring president. Yet it must not be thought that John Waring was unpopular. On the contrary, he was respected and liked by everybody in Corinth. Even the rival faction conceded his ability, his sterling character, and his personal charm. 
and their chagrin and disappointment at his election was far more because of their desire for the other candidate's innovations than of any dislike for John Waring as a man. Of course, there were some who candidly expressed their disapproval of the new president, but, so far, no real opposition was made, and it was hoped there would be none. Now, whether because of the exigencies of his new position, or merely because of the irresistible charms of Mrs. Bates, Waring expected to make the lady his wife before his inauguration. "'And a good thing,' his neighbor Mrs. Adams observed. "'John Waring ought to have been somebody's good-looking husband long ago, but a bachelor president of Corinth is out of all reason. Who'd stand by his side at the receptions, I'd like to know?' For certain public receptions were dearly loved by the citizens of Corinth, and Mrs. Adams was one of the most reception-loving of all. As in all college towns, there were various and sundry boarding-houses, inns, and hotels of all grades, but the boarding-house of Mrs. Adams was, without a dissenting voice, acclaimed the most desirable and most homelike. The good lady's husband, though known as Old Salt, was by no means a seafaring man, nor had he ever been. Instead, he was a leaf on a branch of the Saltonstall family tree, and the irreverent abbreviation had been given him long ago and had stuck. "'Yes, indeed,' Mrs. Adams asserted. "'We've never had a bachelor president of Corinth, and I hope we never will.' Mrs. Bates is a nice, sweet-spoken lady, a widow of four years' standing, and I do say she's just the one for Dr. Waring's wife. She has dignity, and yet she's mighty human. Emily Bates was human, not very tall, a little inclined to plumpness, with fair hair and laughing blue eyes. She was of a cozy, home-loving sort and her innate good nature and ready tact were unfailing. At first she had resisted John Waring's appeal, but he persisted, until she found she really liked the big wholesome man, and without much difficulty learned to love him. Waring was distinguished-looking rather than handsome. Tall and well-made, he had a decided air of reserve which he rarely broke through, but which, Emily Bates discovered, could give way to confidences showing depths of sweetness and charm. The two were happily matched. Waring was forty-two and Mrs. Bates half a dozen years younger. But both seemed younger than their years and retained their earlier tastes and enthusiasms. Also, both were bound up, heart and soul, in the welfare of the university. Mrs. Bates's first husband had been one of the prominent professors, and its history and traditions were known and loved by the cheery little lady. Perhaps the only person in Corinth who was not pleased at the approaching nuptials of John Waring and Emily Bates was Mrs. Peyton, Waring's present housekeeper for it meant the loss of her position, which she had faithfully filled for ten years or more. And this meant the loss of a good and satisfactory home, 
not only for herself, but for her daughter Helen, a girl of eighteen, who lived there also. Not yet had Waring told his housekeeper that she was to be dethroned, but she knew the notice would come, knew, too, that it was delayed only because of John Waring's disinclination to say or do anything unwelcome to another. And Mrs. Peyton had been his sister's school friend and had served him well and faithfully. Yet she must go, for the incoming mistress needed no further housekeeper for the establishment than her own efficient, capable self. It was a very cold February afternoon, and Mrs. Peyton was serving tea in the cheerful living room. Emily Bates was present, an indulgence she seldom allowed herself, for she was punctilious regarding conventions, and Corinth people, after all, were critical. Though, to be sure, there was no harm in her taking tea in the home so soon to be her own. The two women were outwardly most courteous, and if there was an underlying hostility it was not observable on the part of either. "'I came today,' Emily Bates said, as she took her teacup from the Japanese butler who offered it, "'because I want to tell you, John, of some rumors I heard in the town. They say there is trouble brewing for you.' "'Trouble brewing is such a picturesque phrase,' Waring said, smiling idly as he stirred his tea. One immediately visions Macbeth's witches and their trouble brew. "'You needn't laugh,' Emily flashed an affectionate smile toward him. "'When the phrase is used, it often means something.' "'Something vague and indefinite,' suggested Gordon Lockwood, who was wearing secretary and was as one of the family. Not necessarily, Mrs. Bates returned. More likely something definite, though perhaps not very alarming. Such as what? asked Waring. And from what direction? Will the freshmen make me an apple pie bed, or will the seniors haze me, do you think? Be serious, John, Mrs. Bates begged. I tell you, there is a movement on foot to stir up dissension. I heard they would contest the election. Oh, they can't do that, Lockwood stated. Nor would anybody try. Don't be alarmed, Mrs. Bates. I'm sure we know all that is going on, and I can't think there's any trouble brewing for Dr. Waring. I've heard it, too, vouchsafed Mrs. Peyton. It's not anything definite, but there are rumors and hints and where there's smoke, there's bound to be fire. I wish you'd at least look into it, doctor. Yes, agreed Emily Bates. Do look into it, John. But how can I? Waring smiled. I can't go from door to door saying, I've come to investigate a rumor, can I? Oh, don't be absurd. Mrs. Bates's plump little hands fluttered in protest, and then fell quietly to rest in her lap. You men are so tactless. Now, Mrs. Peyton or I could find out all about it, without anyone knowing we were making inquiry. Why don't you, then? asked Waring, 
and Mrs. Peyton gave a pleased smile as the guest bracketed their names. "'I will, if you say so,' Emily spoke gravely. "'That is what I wanted to ask you. I didn't like to take up the matter with anyone unless you directly approved.' "'Oh, go ahead. I see no harm in it.' "'But, Dr. Waring,' put in Lockwood, "'is it wise?' I fear that if Mrs. Bates takes up this matter, she may get in deeper than she means or expects to, and, well, you can't tell what might turn up. That's so, Emily. As matters stand, you'd best be careful. Oh, John, how vacillating you are. First you say go ahead, and then you say stop. I don't mind your changing your opinions but I do resent your paying so little attention to the matter. You toss it aside without thought. Dr. Waring thinks very quickly, said Mrs. Peyton, and Emily gave her a slight stare. It was hard for the housekeeper to realize that she must inevitably lose her place in this household, and the thought made her a little assertive while she still had opportunity. Yes, I know it was the reply Emily gave, and went on, addressing herself to the two men. Persuade him, Mr. Lockwood. Not of his duty, he never misapprehends that, but of the necessity of looking on this matter as a duty. What a pleader you are, Emily! And Waring gave her an admiring bow. I am almost persuaded that my very life is in danger. Oh! You won't be good. The blue eyes twinkled, but the rosy little mouth took on a mutinous pout. Well, I warn you, if you don't look out for yourself, I'm going to look out for you. And that, as Mr. Lockwood hints, may get you into trouble. What a contradictory little person it is. In an effort to get me out of trouble, you admit you will probably get me into trouble. Well, well, if this is during our betrothal days, what will you do after we are married? Oh, then you'll obey me implicitly, and the expressive hands indicated with a wide sweep total subjection. You'll find him not absolutely easy to manage, Mrs. Peyton declared, and though Emily Bates said no word, she gave a look of superior managing power that brought the housekeeper's thin lips together in a resentful straight line. This by-play was unnoticed by large-minded John Waring, but it amused Lockwood, who was an observer of human nature. Unostentatiously, he watched Mrs. Peyton as she turned her attention to the tea-tray and noted the air of importance with which she continued her duties as hostess. "'Bring hot toast, Ito,' she said to the well-trained and deferential Japanese. "'And a few more lemon slices. I see another guest coming.' She smiled out through the window, and a moment later a breezy young chap came into the room. "'Hello, folkses,' he cried. "'Hello, Aunt Emily.' He gave Mrs. Bates an audible kiss on her pretty cheek, and bowed with boyish good humor to Mrs. Peyton. 
"'How do you do, Uncle Doctor?' and "'How goes it, Locke?' he went on, as he threw himself, a little sprawlingly, into an easy chair. "'And here's the fair Helen of Troy.' He jumped up as Helen Peyton came into the room. "'Why, Pinky,' she said, "'when did you come?' "'Just now, my girl, as you noted from your oriel lattice, and came running down to bask in the sunshine of my smiles.' "'Behave yourself, Pinky,' admonished his aunt, as she noted Helen's quick blush and realized the saucy boy had told the truth. Pinckney Payne, college freshman and nephew of Emily Bates, was very fond of Dr. Waring, his English teacher, and is also fond, in his boyish way, of his aunt. But he was no respecter of authority, and now that his aunt was to be the wife of his favorite professor, also the president-elect of the college, he assumed an absolute familiarity with the whole household. His nickname was not only an abbreviation, but was descriptive of his exuberant health and invariably red cheeks. For the rest, he was just a rollicking, carefree boy, ringleader in college fun, often punished, but bobbing up serenely again, ready for more mischief. Helen Peyton adored the irrepressible Pinky and though he liked her, it was no more than he felt for many others, and not so much as he had for a few. "'Tea, Mrs. Peyton? Oh, yes, indeed, thank you. Yes, two lemon and three sugar, and toasts and cakies. Oh, what good ones! What a tuck! Alma Mater doesn't feed us like this. I say, Aunt Emily, after you are married, may I come to tea every day and bring the fellows? I'll answer that. You may, said John Waring. And I'll revise the answer. You may, with reservations, Mrs. Bates supplemented. Now, Pinky, you're a dear and a sweet, but you can't annex this house and all its affairs just because it's going to be my home. Don't want to, Auntie. I only want you to annex me. You'll keep the same cook we have at present, won't you? He looked solicitly at her, over a large slice of toast and jam he was devouring. Maybe and maybe not, Mrs. Peyton spoke up. Cooks are not always anxious to be kept. "'At any rate, we'll have a cook, Pinky, of some sort,' his aunt assured him, and the boy turned to tease Helen Peyton, who was quite willing to be teased. "'I saw your bow today, Helen,' he said. "'Which one?' she asked placidly. "'Is there a crowd? Well, I mean the Tyler person, him as hangs out at Old Salt's. And, by the way, Uncle President, yes, I am a bit previous on both counts, but you'll soon have the honor of being both President and my uncle. By the way, I say, Bob Tyler says there's something in the wind. A straw to show which way it blows, perhaps, Waring said. Perhaps, sir, but it's blowing. 
Tyler says there's a movement on foot to make things hot for you if you take the presidential chair with your present intentions. My intentions? Yes, sir. About athletics and sports in general. And what are my so-called intentions? They say you mean to cut out sport. Oh, Pinckney, you know better than that. Well, Dr. Waring, some seem to think that that's what you have in mind. If you'd declare your intentions now... Look here, Pinky, don't you think I have enough on my mind in the matter of marrying your aunt without bringing in other matters till that's settled? Going to be married soon, Uncle Doc? We are, as soon as your aunt will select a pleasant day for the ceremony. Then, that attended to, I can devote my mind and energies to this other subject. And meanwhile, my boy, if you hear talk about it, don't make any assertions. Rather, try to hush up the subject. I see, I see, and I will, Dr. Waring. You don't want to bother with those things till you're settled down and married man. I know just how you feel about it. Important business, this getting married, I dare say, sir. It is, and so much so that I'm going to take the bride-elect off right now for a little private confab. You must understand that we have much to arrange. Run along. Bless you, my children. Pinky waved a teacup and a sandwich beneficently toward the pair as they left the room and went off in the direction of the doctor's study. The house was a large one with a fine front portico upheld by six enormous fluted columns. One of the most beautiful of New England doorways led into a wide hall. To the right of this was the drawing room, not so often used and not so well liked as the more cozy living room, to the left as one entered, and where the tea-drinking group now sat. Behind these two rooms and hall ran a cross hall, with an outer door at the end back of the living room, and a deep and wide window seat at the other end, behind the drawing room. Further back, beyond the cross hall on the living room side, was the dining room, and beside it, back of the drawing room, was the doctor's study. This was the gem of the whole house. The floor had been sunken to give greater ceiling height, for the room was very large and of fine proportions. It opened on to the cross hall with wide double doors, and a flight of six or seven steps descended to its rug-covered floor. Opposite the double doors was the great fireplace with high overmantel of carved stone. Each side of the mantel were windows, high and not large. The main daylight came through a great window on the right of the entrance, and also from a long French window that opened like doors on the same side. This French window, giving on a small porch, and the door that opened into the cross-hall of the house, were the only doors in the great room, save those on cupboards and bookcases. On the other side of the room, opposite the French window, 
was a row of four small windows looking into the dining room. But these were high and could not be seen through by people on the sunken floor of the study. The whole room was done in Circassian walnut and represented the ideal abode of a man of letters. The fireside was flanked with two facing davenports. The wide window seat was piled with cushions. The French window doors were suitably curtained, and the high windows were of truly beautiful stained glass. The spacious table desk was in the middle of the room, and bookcases, both portable and built-in, lined the walls. There were a few good busts and valuable pictures, and the whole effect was one of dignity and repose rather than of elaborate grandeur. The room was renowned, and all Corinth spoke of it with pride. The students felt it a great occasion that brought them within its walls, and the faculty loved nothing better than a session therein. Casual guests were rarely entertained in the study. Only special visitors, or those worthy of its classic atmosphere, found welcome there. Mrs. Peyton or Helen were not expected to use it, and Mrs. Bates had already declared she should respect it as the sanctum of Dr. Waring alone. The two made their way to the window seat, and as he arranged the soft cushions for her, Waring said, "'Don't, Emily, ever feel shut out of this room. As I live now, I've not welcomed the Peytons in here, but my wife is a different proposition. I still feel an awe of the place, John, but I may get used to it. Anyway, I'll try, and I do appreciate your willingness to have me in here. Then, if you want to be alone, you must put me out. I'll probably do that sometimes, dear, for I have to spend many hours alone you know i'm not taking the presidency lightly i know it you conscientious dear but on the other hand don't be too serious about it you're just the man for the place just the character for a college president and if you try too hard to improve or reconstruct yourself you'll probably spoil your present perfection well, nothing would spoil your present perfection, my Emily. I am too greatly blessed to have the great honor from the college, and you too. Are you happy, John? All happy? Waring's deep blue eyes fastened themselves on her face. His brown hair showed only a little gray at the temples. His fine face was not touched deeply by time's lines and his clear, wholesome skin glowed with health. If there was an instant's hesitation before his reply came, it was nonetheless hearty and sincere. Yes, my darling, all happy. And you? I am happy, if you are, she returned. But I can never be happy if there is a shadow of any sort in your heart. Is there, John? Tell me, truly. You mean regarding this trouble that I hear is brewing for me? Not only that, I mean in any direction. Trouble, Emily, 
With you in my arms? No, a thousand times no. Trouble and I are strangers, so long as I have you. End of chapter 1